Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Survive and Thrive, a podcast that brings you stories and perspectives on how in changing times, leaders and organizations can not only transform to survive, but also thrive. I'm your host, Jennifer Ayers. As a recap, last season, we focused on change management and helping our listeners understand how to positively influence the change they want to see in their organization. This season, our fourth season, we hope to focus on some of the important aspects facing many organizations today regarding the future of work. How can organizations create a healthy work culture that includes fostering a sense of belonging, helping leaders navigate workplaces that have hybrid structures potentially, proactively fostering diversity, considering things like personalized employment, and really helping employees connect to purpose in their work. Today, I'm really excited to have with me Dr. Amber Tishner. Amber is currently the CEO of 2B Coaching and Consulting. Additionally, she's very skilled with her phenomenal background in a variety of fields, including psychology, consulting, coaching. She spent over 20 years in org strategy, leadership consulting work, and has done extensive research specifically around the notion of rivalry between women in the work environment which is a rather fascinating subject. And you can learn more about that in her book, Behind Frenemy Lines. So without further ado, here's Amber on her background in education. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for our conversation today. And yes, my background is in IO psychology, so industrial organizational psychology and I've been a consultant for other organizations for years prior to starting my own business. And when I did my dissertation for my PhD, I had to focus on an issue that I saw at hand in the work environment. I knew I also wanted it to be about women. And that's when I first kind of put my arms around this concept of female rivalry. And I saw it occurring. I saw how disruptive it was to the organization, how it was largely not talked about and the big elephant in the boardroom, I like to call it. But good women were walking and culture was being disrupted. So I moved forward and I interviewed women and I did my dissertation on that topic. And then fast forward, I was so fascinated by this topic and I realized that it just doesn't occur also in the work environment. It occurs for women as a whole in a lot of different types of situations. So I kept collecting stories and that's how my book behind front of me lines rising above female rivalry to be unstoppable together came into place. That's just newly released in November. But so now I have my own business and I focus on helping organizations deal with this type of behavior to have a better um, organizational culture. Wow, that's fascinating. And, you know, I think about where we are right now and how important it is for people to feel that they can thrive in the work environment. I mean, if anything, the pandemic has revealed to us over the last uh, couple of years here is that people crave a sense of belonging. They need to feel connected in some way um, and have a sense of purpose in what they're doing and be able to feel like they can make progress. And Certainly, if these rivalries or other challenges exist in, in the organization, it can be an impediment for the not only the individual, but the organization's success 
the issue at hand when I studied it was female rivalry, but the crux of it, especially when it's happening in an organizational, you know, environment or culture is the aspect of psychological safety. I am very intrigued by your comment regarding psychological safety because I, I can see how the, how those things are related anyway. Say a little bit more about this. This is something that we talk about with our clients. Um, you hear a little bit more about it now. And I'm not sure that everybody understands what is meant by psychological safety. So what's your definition of that, Amber? So one I borrow, I did not come up with this, but I just like it for how short and sweet is it, it is, is by Dr. Timothy Clark. And his definition is an environment of rewarded vulnerability. In layman's terms, it's how secure someone is in a setting regarding their ability to truly be themselves. That greatly impacts how they feel, which impacts how they contribute and are able to utilize their full potential. Ooh. I like that definition. That's, that's a good one. Although Amber focuses primarily on the dynamics between women in the workplace, I believe this idea of psychological safety also plays out in some of our previous episodes where we talk about how all employees are impacted by psychological safety. Our episode from last week, episode 10, covered employee well-being and wellness a topic that feels more important now than ever. We also touched on how vital the sense of belonging is for an organization extensively in episode nine. These episodes, along with some of our other conversations, touch on a key part of an organizational health that percolates all areas, psychological safety in the work environment. And there's a reason why we spent several episodes tackling topics that have psychological safety in mind. Now, let's go back to Amber as she explains why psychological safety matters. It matters on every level because if you aren't able to truly be yourself, you shut down. You might be in a toxic workplace and that is not a good place for a good worker because you'll go into survival mode. It's easy to lose your voice. It's easy to not feel that you're accepted for who you are as a person. And if you don't feel like you're accepted for who you are, then you're not going to give all that you have the ability to give. Mm, so true. So true. I want to return to this idea of female rivalry and psychological safety in the workplace. It is such a fascinating concept to me. And although it may be something that maybe some of us have experienced or maybe some things that we are not aware of, I don't think it's talked about enough. Thankfully, we have people like Amber who are talking about this. In the stories that women have shared with me, if the rivalry occurred in a working environment, probably 90 to 95% of the time they said that the root cause was the organization at hand. They weren't supported. I have had many women say that they'd gone to HR and HR didn't know how to deal with the behavior, so they ignored it. I had one woman tell me that HR basically told her she was making it up and it wasn't real. I've often seen with women, if they are, you know, full bullying and that, you know, that type of really negative behavior is going on, there, there's fear involved. There's fear by the person the behavior is targeted towards. There also may be fear by other colleagues because they don't want to get in her way because they don't know 
what the ramifications will be if she turns around and then targets them. So it's a plethora of things that could result from female rivalry. And just in a quick nutshell, female rivalry has so many faucets of it, too. There's many different types and elements of how that can come about. What intrigues me so much about Amber's expertise is that she has the proper verbiage of what some of us may have encountered but didn't know how to properly articulate. She delves into the many facets of this phenomenon. Men will experience rivalry, but not necessarily the way that women will. And so female rivalry is a type of behavior that make women feel small. It makes the woman who exude the negative behavior, she feels small. The woman on the receiving end feels small because she's the target. It hurts people. It hurts organizations. It can, like I said, show up in a variety of ways. It can be exclusion. It can be mean girl behaviors. It can be the queen bee, you know, trying to make room for herself at the top and, you know, push anyone out of the way to get there. What it truly stems from, I've found, though, is usually that person that is delivering the behavior, she doesn't like herself. That's often the case of it. And so it stems from low self-esteem, the desire for control, and then it feeds off in envy and jealousy. And so I want what you have, or I'll knock you out of the way to get get it that type of behavior. It could be a learned behavior. Maybe that individual grew up in an environment where she saw other women treating each other that way. It could also be she grew up in an environment where she was told she was never good enough or smart enough. And so, you know, she fought to get to where she was by, you know, negative types of behaviors. Often people will, you'll hear the term, well, it's just a cat fight or, you know, women being catty or that's just the way women are. And women do experience these behaviors differently than men. But I think what my research has unfolded is it's not just a cat fight. And when it is ongoing and if it's long term, it's truly a bullying type of behavior that has long lasting ramifications psychologically, emotionally, physically. Women frequently, when they're in this behavior, they truly lose their voice. It's very hard to speak out about it because it's often so intangible and very passive aggressive. So it's hard to verbalize. So there's a lot of different graynesses that surround this behavior. And I think that's why it's often not talked about because it's really, truly hard to pinpoint what it is. How does somebody understand that they might be experiencing this? What? How does it show up? It's funny you say that. Today I wrote a post and I'm like, if you're experiencing this, you might feel like you're a little bit crazy. And that's truly when you're in it, you can think, oh my gosh, what's going on? Oh no, Jennifer didn't do that to me, did she? Why would she treat me like that? I didn't do anything to her. So you might experience some crazy emotions. Because it's very intangible and passive aggressive, sometimes you'll question yourself when you're in it and think, well, why is this going on? I haven't done anything to her. Why would she target me? Chances are you are a target because you are in the path at the wrong time. And really, it might not have anything to do with you and everything to do with her. Because it's very hard to verbalize, because it's hard to understand it at times, it can be hard to document especially if you are in a work environment and you want support. My first 
line of advice is to document, document, document. At some point, you will start to see a pattern emerge, and then that will help you to tell your story. Documentation becomes especially important when speaking to HR. As Amber mentioned, this type of behavior can be difficult to prove, so having some sort of evidence or being able to describe a narrative around it will come in handy if you're trying to explain your story. It goes to where, not that you are name calling, but it gives you something more tangible to help you with your story. You know, it's, it's not just hearsay. Right, right. Yeah. That makes sense. Speaking of others, how can those in leadership positions mitigate this dynamic? Are there steps we can take personally and organizationally to prevent this situation from occurring? From the bottom up and the top down, I think that female rivalry should, you know, your yearly HR trainings or having conversations about what's going on in the workforce, this should be a part of that speak. You talk about what it is. You implement some bystander type trainings so you know that this won't be tolerated. This is what we can look for. And then you have a policy where the behavior isn't accepted. It doesn't just hurt the female, it's targeted. It hurts the culture of those surrounding you because you'll feel uneasy, you'll feel negative, you won't want to rock the boat. It's hard to stand up because you don't want her to turn around and you know target the behavior towards you. So I think bystander training is hugely effective. And then ultimately, it comes down to getting to know each other as real people in the organization and not just your colleagues. So yeah, you're not sharing all your secrets with everybody on your team, but you're getting to know each other more than, you know, just the person that sits next to you or the person, you know, you might have a meeting with on occasion. And that gives you a little more stake in the game of learning who each other are as real people. Unfortunately, bullying in the workplace may be more common than we think. In 2019, on Monster.com, they surveyed over 2,000 employees and found that almost 94% had been bullied in the workplace. That same survey found that over half of those employees were bullied by a boss or a manager. While this dynamic might be common in some places, it doesn't have to be. However, when it comes to female rivalry, it can be even more difficult to approach HR, as Amber has mentioned previously. If you're hesitant to involve others, is there a way you can effectively approach the woman bullying you? Should you even do this? Amber tells me about a time where she faced this issue personally and how she chose to address the situation. I'm a believer of going to the perpetrator or the instigator first. I did this myself. Um, you have to be prepared, though, that that person may totally deny what's going on. And so when I experienced this after I'd already written my dissertation <laughs> and I experienced it full on at work and I didn't really even know it was occurring either, which baffled me because I've studied it so in-depthly. But I went to the individual and I said, hey, I feel like we can communicate better. What can I do? You know, to is there anything you would like me to improve on, upon or what can I do to facilitate our conversations better? She completely denied it. She said there were no issues. She said everything was actually great. I knew it wasn't, though, in my gut. I just think this person didn't like to be caught off guard 
with the approach, you know, I put it on me. I didn't want to make her defensive, but she denied that there was an issue. So maybe go have a cup of coffee or take a little walk, depending on where your office is, or, you know, if you're working virtual, see if you can have a quick phone call. If that person denies it, there's really not much you can do because you know how you feel. And so that's when I definitely would start documenting. And then if you want to pull in somebody else that can help you moderate a conversation, that's always a good idea. You just have to look at what would make the other person go on the offense. I think you also have to look at a couple of other things. Is it a cultural thing or, you know, what are the backgrounds of the individuals coming to the table? I think it's always good to have a reality check. What is the part I am playing in this situation? And and do a self-check to see how you are contributing to the behavior, if you are at all. That's a great point. When I work with individuals that are struggling with somebody at work, I invite them to open up to curiosity because sometimes uh, we are quick to react or respond to an action that somebody has performed and we think it was something directed to them or intended to, you know, intentionally hurt them or make them feel bad. Now, I'm not about to uh, suggest that the real harm and damage can come out of female rivalry or any any rivalry for that matter. And there are people out to, you know, knock others down to get ahead. I mean, that does exist. But I think there can also be a moment where you as an individual can take ownership in what you are doing and what your behaviors are and even invite a conversation that comes from that perspective and and sometimes can be can help the other individual be more disarmed and not defensive so if somebody you you feel has done something to you approaching them with curiosity and sharing that you felt a certain way or you made an observation but you were confused about it because it wasn't something that you were expecting or you didn't expect that person to behave that way sometimes can help just divert a little bit of that knee-jerk reaction from the instigator that opens and invites a dialogue. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but I just appreciate that you made that comment that sometimes you have to just have a moment and take a breath and be curious and look at what might you be doing and come at it from a, a little bit more of an open perspective. While we never want to diminish people's experiences, There are times when a toxic dynamic develops accidentally, as opposed to through competition. Amber shares the example of a time when miscommunication almost poisoned a friendship. I had a gal one time that I had interviewed, and she was sharing her rivalry story with me, which was in education, and it was fairly extensive. She had a couple, actually, because the field was so competitive. But she did say there was a colleague that she had to work with continuously and they kept butting heads. She was from the U.S. This colleague of hers was from Europe. And she said, at the end of it all, I realized that a lot of what we were experiencing came down to complete cultural differences. And once they focused in on that key thing, they became the best friends. It was crazy. She's like, the thing, our relationship totally pivoted. We realized that we just didn't have, you know, insight into each other's daily cultures and how the key one for her was how they were talking to each other. And it made every world a difference after, you know, they discovered that about each other. 
it's so interesting. It reminds me of another story of someone that I mentor who was in a, a difficult work situation where she fully believed this woman was out to get her and gave her some suggestions on how she might approach the situation. And um, sure enough, they're like best buds now. And, <laughs> and they, they like have each other's back. So these stories can turn out really beautiful and powerful where individuals both learn from the experience, but not to, again, not to remove or, or diminish the, the fact that these rivalries can be very disruptive and can be devastating for women. So I'm sure males experience similar difficulties. So, but there, there can be some real success stories in there as well. On episode six of Survive and Thrive this season, we did a deep dive into diversity and inclusion in the workplace. And I believe psychological safety plays a key role in all of that. If you haven't already heard that, go back and check it out. In looking at psychological safety, I wanted to hear about how a company can either accidentally or purposefully erode this component of their workplace. What would the unpsychological safety or the psychologically unsafe work environment look like? And how do employees respond to it? So some of the things I found when you're looking at them, they might seem like little things, but if they're continually occurring, they can turn into big things. So like exclusion in the working environment being stereotyped for something maybe that you are not. If you're in an environment where you're afraid to ask questions, or if you are in an environment where you've been punished, if you've made an honest mistake, if you've ever been ignored or exploited, or if you don't have permission to contribute to the conversation, like these are little things, but actually they're big things that can contribute to an environment that does not have psychological safety, you know, rooted in place. And it leads to a negative organizational culture. I found a few statistics that I love because they're kind of shocking to me. But if employees are experiencing this type of living or working in this environment where there is no psychological safety, 48, again, these are statistics from Dr. Timothy Clark, but 48% of employees will begin to decrease their work efforts. 47% will begin to want to decrease the time they spend at work. And 25% admit to taking frustrations out on customers if they are feeling some of the things that I've mentioned. Ooh, that's a good way to win more customers. No, not so much. (laughs) Those statistics are amazing. And I'm, I'm totally not surprised. I just scratch my head and I say, so why do we keep doing this? (laughs) Like, why don't we as leaders understand this? And how do we fix it? You're right. Because if it's ongoing, time, talent, and money walks out the door. Good employees will walk. And I think it's hard to be, you know, going back to the definition, it's hard to be vulnerable. And I think that's the crux of it. Some people don't know how to in your personal or, you know, they may be in their personal lives, but they think vulnerability is not something you bring to the working environment. You don't, you know, you have to put on your hard armor and your, you know, rough exterior. You don't want people to see you for who you are, but that's old school. I think employees want to be in an environment where they feel safe and included and part of the team. And when that happens, 
you will see people contributing. So as leaders, what can we do? If I'm looking to foster a psychologically safe environment for my employees, what steps can I take? So it starts with the communication. You have to have ongoing, transparent communication, top down, bottom up. You have to let individuals totally be who they are with no repercussions. Like, here I am, I'm here to contribute. So I think you have team building exercises. You get to know, you know, like what I mentioned earlier, you get to know each other as real people. You drop the barriers. That's key. That's the baseline of this. Leadership is letting people be themselves where they can make mistakes and learn and it can't be ruled with, you know, the hand and fist. So you have to change the way you're looking at leadership. You have to change the way you're interacting with your um, associates and employees. We have a little motto at Consinity where we say F to F, free to fail. And sometimes we get a little humorous and we say, feel free to Flub up. (laughs) (laughs) Insert whatever you need to in in that statement. But I have seen for myself firsthand across multiple organizations, large and small, that fundamentally this psychological safety and now that and I'm so glad that it's becoming more popularized in terms of having conversations around it, but it produces a, a devastating effect when you have the shame and blame game going on and it stifles innovation. People get very discouraged. They become negative. The facts are out there and the statistics are out there and the research is out there. But practically experiencing it inside of so many different organizations as, we've, as I've worked through the years in this space and with different people and leaders, it's, it's a real thing. And it can absolutely stifle your business growth and can absolutely diminish your profitability as an organization. Absolutely. I think you've nailed it on all levels and people don't want to work environments where they can't be themselves. And then, you know, you look at the results when people are happy and feel totally like they are a part of the team and their voice is valued and heard, you'll get more out of them. You assess what you've got going on. You look at how you, you know, what you need to work on and improve and you implement a change plan and you keep assessing at all levels to, you know, to, to hit the dots of where you are in, you know, implementing this. Totally agree. Totally agree. Well, this is fascinating just in terms of exploring with you today the importance of psychological safety, what it means, first of all, how it is or is not present in certain organizations, this notion of female rivalry and how female rivalry is uh, creates basically a erosion for psychological safety. Are there any final thoughts that you might have or recommendations that you might have for leaders to keep top of mind on the importance of being aware of psychological safety? I think you have to have your ears always open and you're continually listening. It goes back to the transparent communication from all levels and all angles. But even if you don't like something you're hearing, if you hear it and don't do anything about it, that's detrimental. So if you are opening the doors for people to associates, employees, your organization to provide feedback, you have to be willing to to take it. When associates, employees 
everybody sees that somebody is listening, but then they are acting upon the listening, that's where you're going to start making progress. Because it can be hard to hear. You know, I think as a leader, you want to think you're leading and doing things the right way. But if you're not, you have to be open to the constructive criticism or constructive insight about how to change that. Female rivalry, chances are a lot of organizations have it. I think it's been swept under the rug for so long. I truly think in a more female-dominant organization, women will see it probably more so than men will. I'm not saying that to bash men, but I'm just saying that that it's not usually a behavior that men see unless they've experienced it head-on from someone close to them. That female rivalry and other types of behaviors do exist, and it's it's listening and learning to know what those are so then you can know how to combat them. Great. Thank you so much for that, and thank you for coming today, Amber. It was really fascinating to talk about these two subjects uh, that are very closely related. How might people get a hold of you if they want to talk more about this? Well, thank you, Jennifer. My website, 2B Coaching and Consulting, I'm always accessible via that. I'm on LinkedIn under Amber Tishner, T-I-C-H-E-N-O-R. And I also am on Instagram and Facebook. Again, I have my book behind front of me lines that's out all online bookstores. And but it also just recently came out on Audible as well. So now you can listen to it. And if you don't have time to read it. So there's a bunch of different ways that you can follow me. I'm very active on social media and I love to hear stories or, you know, if you have questions about how to deal with female rivalry, I'm I'm your go-to person. That's awesome. Be sure to check out Amber's links in the show notes. Thank you everyone for listening and joining this week's episode of Survive and Thrive podcast. Remember, at Consinity, we empower the conscious leader to realize positive and sustainable change. Until next time, take care.